0: The word of God for us to consider in today's sermon is from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is the word of our Lord. When I was a kid, there was a TV show on... Called Candid Camera. It was really one of the predecessors to reality TV and to viral videos on YouTube that show practical jokes being played on people. It was hosted by a man named Alan Funt. And so on candid camera, what they would do is they would get a bunch of actors to go out onto a scene. It could be one, it could be two, it could be ten. And everybody in the scene was an actor in on this practical joke except for the one person who was the victim. And then they, right, would play the practical joke on the person. And then they would be recording it and get their, their reaction to being the victim of a practical joke. You know, they'd get the reaction on camera. And they'd get their raw, real, unedited unedited reaction. Then Alan Funt would show up on the scene, he would put his arm around the person, and he'd say, Smile, you're on candid camera. And that made him feel better sometimes. What does it mean to be candid? Or to have candor? Same word. That... Show called Candid Camera tells us exactly what it means. It, it, to be candid is to be straightforward, honest, truthful, and real. So if you hire a photographer to take pictures of your family, and the photographer says, Hey, I want to get some candid shots. What, what they mean is, I want to get some pictures of you where you're not posing. You're not you're not pretending like you're always smiling at each other. It's real, it's normal, <laughs> right? And so candid means You're not posing or not pretending. You're a realist. Now, there are a number of situations where being candid is important and helpful. I think the three most common and and also the most important are this. First of all, it's important to be candid when, when you and another person might have a difference in your opinion, in your taste, or in your perspective even. And that calls for just understanding, more or less, on either person's part. So if I'm at a lunch with you and we're meeting up with a few other people and uh, I'm eating my pulled pork sandwich and i got barbecue sauce all over my right cheek and now I'm trying to engage in serious business and you're my friend, you're going to give me the you-have-barbecue-sauce-on-your-right-cheek signal so that I wipe it off. That's candor, right? We had different perspectives and yours was helpful for me. Being candid also applies in educational settings. Uh, We're finishing up school these days. We're congratulating graduates. Being candid or having candor in an educational and a learning environment is the teacher or a coach taking the student or the player uh, and, and correcting a false assumption or a missing item that they need to know, right? It's giving the real straightforward truth. That happens in education all the time. The third area of being candid is when there's conflict that develops between you and another person. Uh, When there's a real or a perceived injustice of some kind, and then there's tension that develops between two people uh, for instance, you have a friend, and that friend takes a video of you doing something kind of silly, and, and you say, well, just don't post that anywhere. And they say, don't worry, I'm not going to post it. And then what happens? Then they post the video, and then you've got to talk to them and have some candor with them and tell them that they didn't keep their promise and they disappointed you. That's being candid. We're in our friendship series appreciating some of the aspects of friendship and relationships and being candid is one of those. Jesus talks about the importance of being candid and he's candid himself in this section of Matthew 16 that I just read. Elsewhere, Jesus talks about the importance of being candid, especially in the area of conflict. I mean, it'd be hard for me to find many, many places where Jesus gives you a legitimate excuse to not be in church but here's one of them. Here's a place where Jesus talks about being candid during conflict. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Here's what Jesus says. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, did you catch the why in there? When you're approaching someone with candor, especially when there's conflict of any kind, did you hear the why? That's very important. Not just the what, but the why. The why that Jesus had, it's not about you proving you're right. That's not why we practice candor. That's not why we're candid. That's not why we resolve conflict. It's not about you being right. It's about your relationship with that person being restored or reconciled, as the word Jesus used. That's very important to remember as we move along. It's not about you being right. It's about the relationship being reconciled. The Bible in numerous places has examples and encouragements for us to be candid, to tell the truth, to be straightforward and honest. There's a couple of them in the book of Proverbs that are very helpful. They give some good pictures about the importance of being candid. So Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So that's saying... Someone might tell you the truth, and it might even hurt, but if that person's a friend, you can trust them even if it hurts. They're not interested in being angry at you. They're interested in assisting you and helping you. All right, Proverbs 29, verse 5 says, Those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. (laughs) So that's saying you can sugarcoat things, and you can give someone fake praise and just butter them up, And in the end, it's actually going to trap them. It's going to be harmful for them. So here's a good rule of thumb. Tell other people the truth, both in what you tell them and how you tell them, in the same way that you would want them to tell you. That's being candid. So Jesus shows us being candid in Matthew chapter 16, and that also makes us want to be candid with others the area that we want to focus on today, and that's in these words from Matthew 16, a subpoint under being candid, is in areas of conflict. And we see that in these words of Jesus and in what he's talking about. So let's answer this question. Where do we experience conflict? Since I'm encouraging you to be candid. I'm just going to be candid and straightforward and honest. I'm not going to dance around this. I'm just going to tell you the way it is. We experience conflict, most of all. Well, not so much like if you're, you're conflicted with me because I like thin crust pizza and you like thick crust pizza. That's not so much where conflict comes from. Or um, your friend likes uh, contemporary songs and you like classic hymns. I mean, you know what? That's really not so much where conflict comes from either. Those are horizontal reasons for conflict. Those are relation- relationship-level reasons. And really, they're rarely the real reason for conflict. The real reason for conflict usually is a vertical reason usually is a spiritual issue related to your heart. Where your heart is at with God, where you are spiritually, how you've accepted God's advice and his promises, that's where real conflict comes from. At Holy Word Pflugerville, we have a 2017 Bible reading plan for this entire year, and along with that, we have a devotion book that we're reading. This was the topic on Friday's devotion. This very thing. I'm going to read a part of that devotion to explain the real reason for conflict. Here it is. The Bible explains why we have so many fights and quarrels. It doesn't say, they come from those difficult people you live with. Or, conflict is the result of the practical issues you're forced to deal with every day. No. The Bible says, Conflicts come from the passions that wage war in our hearts. I fight with you because I have a heart problem. Rather than my heart being ruled by God and motivated by God's honor, my heart is ruled by my wants, my needs, my feelings. And when it is, I'm always in some kind of conflict. That was right there in our devotion from Friday. So true as a devotion on the book of James. So, where do we experience conflict? It starts in the heart. And then it goes out from there. It starts because we have what he calls a heart problem. Now, in Matthew 16, in these words that we have for our sermon text today, the Bible helps us identify three areas of in- influence that make sure, or want to make sure, that your heart is devoted to conflict with people around you. That it's not devoted to God. There's three areas of influence. Sometimes scholars, theologians will call them the terrible trio. Maybe you already know what I'm thinking of now when I say the the terrible trio. Who are the terrible trio and their influence on, on conflict? The first one is the devil, otherwise known as Satan. Hey, okay, verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Whoa! So remember, Jesus had just announced to his disciples in deeper, more detailed explanation that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Peter had said, No, Jesus, we're, we don't want you to do that. You're not going to do that. So now Peter is stepping in the way of God's plan of salvation, sending his son to be the savior substitute for the world. And Peter's saying, I don't think so. Stepping in the way of God's plan is not the role of a disciple, it's the role of Satan. Getting in the way of God's plan of salvation for people is not what Jesus' disciples do, it's what the devil does. And so, Jesus is not saying to Peter, Peter, you're demon-possessed. He's not saying that Peter is the devil incarnate himself. He's saying, this perspective, Peter, that you're offering is a satanic one, it's a devilish one. That's the perspective of Satan, not the perspective of a disciple. And so, you see the devil at work seeking to create conflict and then Jesus using candor with Peter. Now, how did the devil work on Peter? Did he just uh, show up one day, drop out of the sky, or maybe come out of a fireball from the bottom of the earth and, and uh, show his claws and scare P- Peter into saying this? Probably not. Um, here's what he did. He used the second of the terrible trio to drip, 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 this perspective into Peter's heart and mind in a marketing kind of way. And that second of the terrible trio is the world. The world is society and, and its values that are all around us. The world is what the Joneses are doing. The world is, uh, hey, uh, here's, what, here's what all my friends are doing after the prom. Why can't I? Right? The world is uh, material things that become important and even spiritual beliefs that tend to be pervasive in our society that, that don't agree with God's, that are not God's ways. That's, that's the world. The Bible says whoever loves the world, the love of the Father, of God the Father is not in them. So the world is, in that sense, of the world's values and viewpoints, an enemy of God. Jesus, in his final words to Peter, talks about the world when he says, Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. There it is. Finally, Jesus addresses all of his disciples and us with the third of the terrible trio. So we have the devil, we have the world, and we have our sinful nature. Sometimes we call that the flesh. Right? Jesus mentions that in verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus wants you to pick a fight with yourself. Right in these words. Jesus wants you to struggle against yourself. He wants you to understand that at times, your sinful nature, you can be your own worst enemy. So keep in mind the terrible three, the terrible trio, and how they seek to create conflict, but the wrong kind of conflict. They seek to create conflict between you and Jesus, between you and God's plan. And in his words, Jesus talks about being a disciple, and he says, you, are, you cannot follow me. You are not my disciple if you are insisting that your plan is always better than God's plan. You are not my disciple. You are not following me. If you allow the devil, the world, or your sinful nature to convince your heart that your way is always the better way, that your ideas are better than God's ideas, that you're smarter than God's, God is, and that, that your opinion is always the better opinion than anyone else on this planet. Jesus says, you're not my disciple and you can't follow me if you treat conflict as a weapon and see it only as a way to show others that they're wrong and you're right and to get your way, and that's most important to you. And so you see this, that conflict between us and Jesus in our heart, facilitated by the devil, the world, or our sinful nature, all three are a mix of them, that is the most dangerous conflict anywhere and therefore the most important for us to address. Do you have this problem when it comes to conflict? I do. Being right all the time. Do you have that challenge that just doesn't, doesn't matter what the, what, what the misunderstanding or the disagreement or the conflict is, you're always right. I, I have that problem. I, you may not, but, you know, when, when you're in conflict with me, you don't stand a chance because I'm, I'm always right. I'm, I'm just right all the time. It's that simple. Uh, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Think about what it, what it really would be like, truthfully and honestly, to be right all the time and how frustrating that would be have people who then conflict with you, to be in conflict with people who disagree with you, who doubt your perspective, who say that you're wrong. how Wouldn't that be frustrating? To, what, you just want to stamp your foot down and say, would you just listen? I'm the one who's right all the time. Just do it my way and everything will be okay. Well, guess what? God is right all the time. Jesus is perfect in everything that he thinks and plans and says and does and tells you to do. He's perfect in keeping his promises that you like to doubt sometimes. He's perfect in giving you his commands that you second guess. And so what would it be like to be Jesus who's right all the time when it comes to conflict with sinners? Wouldn't I mean, does Jesus get frustrated with us does he stomp his foot and say, for crying out loud, would you just listen to me once and for all? Does he, does he create a, a, a bitmoji or, or an email signature with a picture of himself and the caption says, I told you so? You know, does he at some point just say, I've had enough. I don't know what planet they think they're living on, but I, but I can't take this from this person anymore. Does he walk away from you? He's right all the time. So what does he do? Jesus hangs in there with you. And Jesus suffers injustice and even wrong. And he's patient with you. And he's not ever frustrated with you. And he loves you, and he's understanding of you. And that gets us to the next question. How does the cross resolve conflict? Because it does. Jesus is perfect and righteous on his own, in his, in his essence, and in everything that he does and says and thinks and his behavior. He's perfectly righteous, right all the time. So he'd say that he's self-righteous. But Jesus wasn't happy with his self-righteousness just existing for himself. He wanted his righteousness to benefit you and to benefit all sinners. And so instead of just existing with self-righteousness, Jesus practiced selfless righteousness. And gave you his and so true Christian candid conflict resolution is where self-righteousness mine was fake before and all of ours is right we think we're right all the time but we're not self-righteousness Jesus's is real but we replace self-righteousness with selfless Righteousness, just like Jesus did for us. Um, he talks about that. Instead of telling his disciples or telling Peter, listen, I told you so. Would you just knock it off? Would you stop it? Here's what Jesus says to them about, with, with candor about this conflict. Here's his solution. Right here, this verse in the Bible, is the resolution to all conflict in your life. And I'm not being minimalistic or simplistic by saying that? That's the real deal. Here it is, Matthew chapter 26, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus resolved your heart problem. Jesus resolved your conflict with him that is often expressed in conflict with others. Jesus resolved that by actually creating more conflict. Do you see that? His goal isn't no conflict. His goal is reconciling his relationship with you. And so, given the fact that there's conflict in your relationship with Jesus, Jesus says... I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to actually choose even more conflict, more intense conflict. I will go to Jerusalem and I will suffer pain. I will suffer injustice. I will suffer being the one that it maybe seems as if I'm the wrong one. I will suffer crucifixion and death and burial. You see that? It created, his decision to love you created even more conflict for him. But it was good conflict and it was godly conflict and it was what was necessary to make your relationship with him right. You know that proverb I quoted before? Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Sometimes we can refer to Jesus as the wounded friend or the wounded healer. And in this special godly way that applies only to Jesus Wounds from a friend can be trusted. That normally means your friend is going to wound you like a doctor might wound you in surgery for your good, right? Your friend might tell you the truth and it might hurt, but it's meant for your good. That's the context of that proverb, but think of it applied to Jesus. Not only does he tell you the truth and maybe it hurts, it stings a little bit sometimes, And he doesn't cause you wounds with the truth, but with the truth, he causes himself wounds. With the truth that he wants to reconcile with you and restore your relationship, he takes on wounds for himself. And those are the wounds that heal you, that restore you, that bring you close to him, that make you say, Jesus, You're my best friend. And here's how he explains it. That he must go and must be killed. Not in the sense that he didn't have any choice, but it's a powerful word. It literally means it is necessary. It is divinely necessary, Jesus is saying. This is part of the plan. This has been it for, for a long time, and now I'm fulfilling this. I need to do this. Maybe you've said that about something. That's what I must means when Jesus says must. I need to do this. My relationship with these sinners, with the world, with me, with you, is broken, and it needs to be restored. I need to to go to Jerusalem. I need to be killed. It was the only way. And Jesus accepted it and chose it. There would not be any resurrection without a crucifixion. It was the only way. But when there was a crucifixion, there indeed was a resurrection too. It was the must for Jesus. You are his must. You are Jesus' must. I must love them. I must forgive them. I must restore the relationship. So, what about the must? Of being candid in conflict for you. Can you think of a situation right now, a relationship, a scenario, a circumstance that needs you to be candid and you've been backing away? Or needs you to be candid in the right way and you've been to attack mode? And can you think of it as your must? Not an option. But as Jesus is saying to you, this is the way. In this relationship, the way is being candid as a Christian, and this is your must, too. I know you have them. I do. And your musts are also Jesus' musts, too. And then with the candor of the gospel... The candor of the gospel says to you, Jesus Jesus says, this is my love for you. This is what I've done for you. You and I, Jesus says, we don't have an issue. We don't have a problem. There is no conflict between you and me, Jesus says. And that's the beauty of the candor of the gospel. It's clear and it's truth-telling and it's straightforward. And Jesus doesn't only proclaim the gospel to you. He proclaims it to the terrible trio, the devil and the world and your sinful nature. He proclaimed it to the world when he rose from the dead and announced to the world, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. He announced it to your sinful nature. When you were baptized, and the Bible says when you're baptized, you're baptized into Christ and you're born again. He announced to your sinful nature, you are not their identity anymore. I am. I'm taking over. I have control. You cannot curse or control them to your sinful nature. Jesus announced the gospel. And where did he announce the gospel to the devil? After he became alive, we say this in our creed, he descended into hell. And there announced to the devil himself, I'm alive. I win. I have resolved all conflict between sinners and myself that's the candor of the gospel that Jesus uses so what should we do with conflict in our own personal relationships Um, it's not a big deal for me to now give you a toolbox of six tips to resolve conflict in your personal relationships I, I think you can find that out there what's important and what Jesus wants for us today is to know to start here Where do you start in resolving conflict in your personal relationships? I'm talking this week. The phone call you need to make, the person you need to have coffee with, where do you start? You start here. And you start by being willing to face the fact that that you have a heart problem, and that person may too, but start with yourself. And then be willing to to suffer loss and even injustice and to make sacrifice just like Jesus must, like he had to do for you. And to understand that sometimes conflict resolutions still involves pain and sacrifice on your part, even as it's a good thing. I can turn you to Ephesians chapter 4 that has some wonderful verses of advice for resolving conflict. Those are printed in the sermon notes, those verses. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. That's a bit of a toolbox of sorts that'll guide you through the process. But you go at it with the right heart and, and you won't go wrong, no matter how comfortable you are in using those tips. Here's the final one, the verse 32. Remember this. Be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving one another just as in Christ God forgave you. Conflict resolved with the candor of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. God Almighty, we often experience conflict with you, and you could just... Flick your finger and be done with us but in your love you promised not to do that and in your love you sacrificed your own son you endured conflict too as his father and he endured conflict for us so that our conflict with you would be resolved father bless us this week as we keep that on our hearts and in our minds how you you have restored our relationship with you and in the candor of the gospel, spoken it to us so plainly and given us so many promises. May all of that inspire us and equip us to resolve our conflicts with others too, even when it's difficult. We ask for your mercy, for your salvation, and for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.